Chapter 15 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. to Chapter 15. The Conception of the Unconscious. 1. The Distinction Between the Personal and the Impersonal Unconscious. Since the breach with the Viennese school upon the question of the fundamental explanatory principle of analysis that is, the question if it be sexuality or energy, our concepts have undergone considerable development. After the prejudice concerning the explanatory basis had been removed by the acceptance of a purely abstract view of it, the nature of which was not anticipated, interest was directed to the concept of the unconscious. According to Freud's theory, the contents of the unconscious are limited to infantile wish tendencies, which are repressed on account of the incompatibility of their character. Repression is a process which begins in early childhood under the moral influence of environment. It continues throughout life. These repressions are done away by means of analysis, and the repressed wishes are made conscious. That should theoretically empty the unconscious and, so to say, do away with it. But in reality, the production of infantile sexual wish fantasies continues into old age. According to this theory, the unconscious contains only those parts of the personality which might just as well be conscious and have really only been repressed by the processes of civilization. According to Freud, the essential content of the unconscious would therefore be personal. But although, from such a viewpoint, the infantile tendencies of the unconscious are the more prominent, it would be a mistake to estimate or define the unconscious from this alone, for it has another side. Not only must the repressed materials be included in the periphery of the unconscious, but also all the psychic material that does not reach the threshold of consciousness. It is impossible to explain all these materials by the principle of repression, for in that case, by the removal of the repression, a phenomenal memory would be acquired, one that never forgets anything. As a matter of fact, repression exists, but it is a special phenomenon. If a so-called bad memory were only the consequence of repression, then those persons who have an excellent memory should have no repression, that is, be incapable of being neurotic. But experience teaches us that this is not the case. There are undoubtedly cases with abnormally bad memories where it is clear that the main cause must be attributed to repression. But such cases are comparatively rare. We therefore emphatically say that the unconscious contains all that part of the psyche that is found under the threshold, including subliminal sense perceptions, in addition to the repressed material. We also know 
not only on account of accumulated experience, but also for theoretical reasons that the unconscious must contain all the material that has not yet reached the level of consciousness. These are the germs of future conscious contents. We have also every reason to suppose that the unconscious is far from being quiescent, in the sense that it is inactive, but that it is probably constantly busied with the formation and reformation of so-called unconscious fantasies. Only in pathological cases should this activity be thought of as comparatively autonomous, for normally it is coordinated with consciousness. It may be assumed that all these contents are of a personal nature insofar as they are acquisitions of the individual life. As this life is limited, the number of acquisitions of the unconscious must also be limited. Wherefore, an exhaustion of the contents of the unconscious through analysis might be held to be possible. In other words, by the analysis of the unconscious, the inventory of unconscious contents might be completed possibly in the sense that the unconscious cannot produce anything besides what is already known and accepted in the conscious. Also, as has already been said, we should have to accept the fact that the unconscious activity had thereby been paralyzed, and that by the removal of the repression, we could stop the conscious contents from descending into the unconscious. Experience teaches us that is only possible to a very limited extent. We urge our patients to retain their hold upon repressed contents that have been brought to consciousness and to insert them in their scheme of life. But, as we may daily convince ourselves, this procedure seems to make no impression upon the unconscious inasmuch as it goes on producing apparently the same fantasies, namely the so-called infantile sexual ones, which according to the earlier theory were based upon personal repressions. If in such cases analysis be systematically continued, an inventory of incompatible wish fantasies is gradually revealed, whose combinations amaze us. In addition to all the sexual perversions, every conceivable kind of crime is discovered, as well as every conceivable heroic action and great thought, whose existence in the analyzed person no one would have suspected. In order to give an example of this, I would like to refer to Mater's schizophrenic patient who called the world his picture book. He was a locksmith's apprentice who fell ill very early in life. He had never been blessed with intellectual gifts. As regards his idea that the world was his picture book and that he was turning its pages over when he looked about in the world, it is just Schopenhauer's world, conceived as will and representation expressed in primitive picture language. This idea has just as universal a character as Schopenhauer's. The difference consists in the fact that the patient's notion has stood still at an embryonic stage in a process of growth, whereas with Schopenhauer the same idea has been changed from a mere image into an abstraction expressed in terms that are universally valid. It would be false to assume that the patient's idea had a personal character and value. That would be to attribute to him the dignity of a philosopher. But he alone is a philosopher who raises an image that has naturally sprung up into an abstract idea, thereby translating it into terms of universal validity. 
Schopenhauer's philosophical conception is his personal value, whereas the notion of the patient has merely an impersonal value of natural growth, in which personal proprietary rights can only be acquired by making an abstraction of the images and translating them into terms that are universally valid. But it would be wrong if an exaggerated sense of the value of this achievement led us to ascribe to the philosopher the merit of having made or conceived the original image itself. The primordial image has also sprung up naturally in the philosopher and is nothing but a part of the universal human heritage in which, theoretically at least, everyone has a share. The golden apples come from the same tree whether they are gathered by a locksmith's apprentice or Schopenhauer. The recognition of such primordial images obliges me to differentiate between the contents of the unconscious, a differentiation of another kind, than that between the preconscious and unconscious, or between the subconscious and unconscious. The justification for those distinctions cannot be discussed here. They have a value of their own and probably merit to be carried further as affording a point of view. The differentiation which I propose follows obviously from what has previously been said, namely, that in the so-called unconscious we must differentiate a layer which may be termed the personal unconscious. The materials contained in this layer are of a personal kind, inasmuch as on the one hand they may be characterized as acquisitions of the individual existence, and on the other as psychological factors which might just as well be conscious. It is, for instance, comprehensible that incompatible psychological elements succumb to repression on the one hand and are therefore unconscious, but on the other hand, there exists the possibility of bringing the repressed contents into consciousness and keeping them there, once they are known and recognized. We recognize these materials as personal contents, because we can prove their effects, their partial appearance or their origin to lie in our personal past. They are integral constituents of the personality, and belong to a complete inventory of the same. They are constituents whose omission in consciousness implies an inferiority in one respect or another, not indeed as an inferiority bearing the psychological character of an organic deformity or a natural defect, but rather the character of a neglect which arouses a moral reaction. The feeling of moral inferiority always indicates that in the portion omitted is something that, according to the feelings, should not be missing or in other words, could be conscious if we took sufficient trouble about it. The sense of moral inferiority is not the result of a collision with the universal, in a certain sense arbitrary moral law, but rather the result of a conflict with the personal ego, which by reason of the psychic economy demands an adjustment of the deficiency. Wherever a feeling of inferiority appears... It reveals not only the presence of a demand for the assimilation of an unconscious constituent, but also the possibility of such an assimilation. It is, after all, a person's moral qualities that make him assimilate his unconscious self and retain it in consciousness, whether he be forced to it by a recognition of its necessity or by a painful neurosis. 
He who continues to tread this path of the realization of his unconscious self necessarily transposes the content of the personal unconscious into consciousness, whereby the periphery of the personality is considerably enlarged. 2. The Consequences of the Assimilation of the Unconscious this process of assimilating the unconscious leads to remarkable results. Some people build up from it an unmistakable, even unpleasantly increased self-consciousness or self-confidence. They know everything and are completely aware of everything so far as their unconscious is concerned. They think themselves accurately informed about everything that comes up from the unconscious. Others are increasingly oppressed by the contents of the unconscious. They lose their self-reliance or their self-consciousness more and more and come near to a state of depressed resignation in regard to all the extraordinary things the unconscious produces. The former undertake in the exuberance of their self-confidence a responsibility for their unconscious that goes much too far beyond every reasonable possibility. The latter ultimately decline to accept any responsibility in the depressing recognition of the powerlessness of the ego confronted by relentless destiny working through the unconscious. If we give the two types close analytical consideration, we shall discover that behind the optimistic self-confidence of the former, there is hidden a just as deep or rather a far deeper helplessness, a helplessness to which the conscious optimism acts as an unsuccessful effort at compensation. Behind the pessimistic resignation of the latter, there is hidden a defiant desire for power, far exceeding in self-confidence the conscious optimism of the former type. This condition of the personality may well be expressed by the idea of God-almightiness, Gatanlichkeit, to which Adler has particularly drawn our attention. When the devil wrote the serpent's words in the student's album, Iritus sicut Deus scientus bonum e malum, he added, Follow the ancient text and the snake thou wast ordered to trample. With all thy likeness to God, thou'lt yet be a sorry example. The idea of likeness to God, or God Almightiness, is not a scientific one, although it characterizes the psychological state of affairs most exactly. Still, we must examine whence this attitude comes and ask why it merits the name of God Almightiness. As the expression denotes, the patient's abnormal condition is constituted by the fact that he ascribes to himself qualities or values which obviously do not belong to him. For God Almightiness means being like the spirit which is set above the human spirit. If, for psychological purposes, we abstract from the hypostasis of the God idea, we find that this expression does not only include every dynamic fact discussed in my book on the psychology of the unconscious, but also a certain mental function having a collective character, which is of another order from that of the individual character of the mind. 
In the same way, as the individual is not only an isolated and separate, but also a social being, so also the human mind is not only something isolated and absolutely individual, but also a collective function. And just as certain social functions or impulses are, so to speak, opposed to the egocentric interests of the individual, so also the human mind has certain functions or tendencies which, on account of their collective nature, are to some extent opposed to the personal mental functions. This is due to the fact that every human being is born with a highly differentiated brain which gives him the possibility of attaining a rich mental function that he has neither acquired ontogenetically nor developed. In proportion as human brains are similarly differentiated, the corresponding mental functions are collective and universal. This circumstance explains the fact that the unconscious of far separated peoples and races possesses a remarkable number of points of agreement. One example among many others which has been demonstrated is the extraordinary unanimity shown by the autochthonous forms and themes of myths. The universal similarity of brains results in a universal possibility of a similar mental function. This function is the collective psyche which is divided into collective mind and collective soul insofar as there exist differentiations corresponding to race, descent, or even family, so beyond the level of the universal collective psyche, we find a collective psyche limited by race, descent, and family. To quote P. Genet, the collective psyche contains the partie inferieure of the mental function, that is, the part of the mental function which, being fixed and automatic in its action, inherited and present everywhere, is therefore superpersonal or impersonal. The conscious and the personal unconscious contain as personal differentiations the partie supérieure of the mental function, therefore the part that has been acquired and developed ontogenetically. An individual, therefore, who joins the a priori and unconsciously given collective psyche onto his ontogenetically acquired assets enlarges thereby the periphery of his personality in an unjustifiable way, with the corresponding consequences, inasmuch as the collective psyche is the partie inferieure of the mental function and therefore is the fundamental structure underlying every personality, it weighs heavily upon and depreciates the personality, a fact that is expressed in the aforementioned stifling of self-confidence and in the unconscious increase of the ego emphasis up to the point of a morbid will to power. Inasmuch as the collective psyche ranks even above the personality, because it is the mother foundation upon which all personal differentiations are based, and because it is the common mental function of the sum total of the individual, therefore its incorporation in the personality may evoke inflation of self-confidence, an inflation which is then compensated by an extraordinary sense of inferiority in the unconscious. A dissolution of the pairs of opposites in the personality sets in if... Through the assimilation of the unconscious, the collective psyche be included in the inventory of the personal mental functions. Alongside the pairs of opposites already alluded to that are so particularly evident in the neurotic, 
viz. megalomania and sense of inferiority, there are also many other pairs, of which I will only mention the specifically moral pair, that is, good and evil, scientus bonum e malum. They accompany the increase or depreciation of self-confidence. The specific virtues and vices of humanity are contained in the collective psyche just as everything else is. One man ascribes all the collective virtue to himself as his own personal merit. Another accounts as personal guilt what is but collective vice. Both are just as illusionary as the sense of greatness and of inferiority. For imaginary virtues as well as imaginary vices are only the pairs of moral opposites contained in the collective psyche, which have become perceptible or or have artificially been made conscious. How far the collective psyche contains these pairs of opposites is shown by primitive peoples, whose great virtue is praised by one observer, whereas another observer of the same race reports only the worst impressions. Both views are true of primitive man, whose personal differentiation is only beginning. His mental function is essentially collective. He is more or less identified with the collective psyche, and therefore without any personal responsibility or inner conflict. His virtues and vices are collective. Conflict only begins when a conscious personal development of the mind has already started whereby the reason becomes aware of the irreconcilable nature of the pairs of opposites. The struggle to repress is the consequence of this realization. Man wants to be good, therefore the bad must be repressed. This puts an end to the paradise of the collective psyche. The repression of the collective psyche, insofar as it was conscious, was a necessity for the development of the personality because collective psychology and personal psychology are, in a certain sense, irreconcilable. In the history of thought, whenever a fresh psychological attitude acquires collective value, the formation of schisms begins. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the history of religion. A collective point of view, although it may be necessary, is always dangerous for the individual. It is dangerous because it is apt to choke and smother personal differentiation. It has derived this capacity from the collective psyche, which is itself a result of psychological differentiation of the strong gregarious instincts of humanity. Collective thought and feeling and collective accomplishment are relatively easy in comparison with individual function and performance a fact that is only too prone to lead to a fining down to the collective level and is particularly disastrous to personal development. The concomitant loss of personality is replaced, as is always the case in psychology, by an unconscious, all-compelling binding to and identification with the collective psyche. It cannot be denied and should be warningly emphasized that in the analysis of the unconscious, the collective psychology is merged into the personal psychology with the aforementioned unpleasant consequences. These consequences are either bad for the individual's vital feeling, Lebensgefühl, or they injure his fellow beings if he have any power over his environment. Being identified with the collective psyche, he will inevitably try to force the claims of his unconscious upon others. For identification with the collective psyche 
is accompanied by a feeling of universal validity, God Almightiness, which disregards the different psychology of his fellows. The worst abuses of this kind may be removed by a clear understanding and appreciation of the fact that there are totally different psychological types, and that a psychology of one type cannot be forced into the mold of another. It is indeed almost impossible for one type to understand the other completely, and a perfect comprehension of another's individuality is impossible. Due regard for another's individuality is not only advisable, but is absolutely essential in analysis if the development of the other's personality is not to be stifled. It should not be forgotten that the one type thinks that he is leaving another person free when he grants him freedom of action, and the other type when he grants him freedom of thought. In analysis, both must be conceded, insofar as reasons of self-preservation permit the analyst to accord them. An excessive desire to understand or explain things is just as useless and injurious as a lack of comprehension. The collective natural propensities and primary forms of idea and feeling which analysis of the unconscious has shown to be effective are an acquisition for the conscious personality which cannot be admitted unreservedly without prejudicial results. In practical treatment, it is therefore of the utmost importance to keep the aim of individual development constantly before us. If, for instance, the collective psyche be conceived as a personal possession or as a personal burden, an unbearable weight or strain is put upon the personality. Hence, we must make a clear distinction between the personal and the collective psyche. In practice, this distinction is not easy because the personal grows out of the collective psyche and is most closely joined with it. It is therefore difficult to say which materials are to be termed collective and which personal. There is no doubt, for instance, that the archaic symbols so often found in fantasies and dreams are collective factors. All primary propensities and forms of thought and feeling are collective. So is everything about which men are universally agreed, or which is universally understood, said, or done. Upon close consideration, it is astonishing to note how much of our so-called individual psychology is really collective, so much that the individual element quite disappears. Individuation, however, is an indispensable psychological requirement. The crushing predominance of what is collective should make us realize what peculiar care and attention must be given to the delicate plant individuality, if it is to develop. Human beings have a capacity which is of the utmost use for purposes of collectivism and most prejudicial to individuation, and that is the capacity to imitate collective psychology cannot dispense with imitation, without which the organization of the state and society would be impossible. Imitation includes the idea of suggestibility, suggestive effect, and mental infection. But we see daily how the mechanism of imitation is used, or rather abused, for the purposes of personal differentiation. Some prominent personality or peculiar trait or activity is simply imitated which at least brings about an external differentiation from the environment. As a rule, this delusive attempt to attain individual differentiation by means of imitation comes to a standstill as mere affectation. 
the individual remaining on the same plane as before, only a few degrees more sterile than formerly, and under an unconscious compulsory bondage to his environment. In order to find out what is really individual in us, we should have to give the matter deep thought, and we should certainly become aware how exceedingly difficult such a discovery is. End of chapter 15. Sections 1 and 2.